I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. My name is Maris Kreisman. I am really honored to be joined today by Natasha Trethaway. She's a former U.S. Poet Laureate and the author of five collections of poetry as well as a book of creative nonfiction. She's currently the Board of Trustees Professor of English at Northwestern University. In 2007, she won the Pulitzer Prize in Poetry for her collection Native Guard. Her latest book, is a memoir called Memorial Drive. Welcome, thank you so much for being here, Natasha. Thank you for having me. You wrote such a beautiful and devastating book about what you call like a, 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 the main trauma of your life. And, and I'm wondering if you could start off by, by telling me how you summon the strength to revisit that time in your life. Oh, um, it was really hard because, um, you know, I've spent the last 30 years um, before trying to remember, trying to forget, trying to bury it all. And in so doing, um, I lost a lot of, the things about my mother I would have liked to remember. A great deal of it came back as I was writing the book, but it was very difficult to go to that place um, and, to, and to stay there for the time it took to write this book. How long did it take? Oh. Seven years. Wow. And yet I see it... it, it Certainly in your previous poetry collection, I see fragments of it. Do, do you think it was easier to address your trauma in poetry rather than prose at first? I think so, because I could really um, handpick certain moments. And these were mostly 
in my earlier poems, moments I think that brought her back to life. Um, and I could keep the reality of it at bay in those moments in a poem. It wasn't until uh, I started writing Memorial Drive that I also started writing poems that dealt more with the, the domestic violence and, and how she died literally rather than simply metaphorically in the background. Um, I had to write them, I think, because there are moments that I would be working on the memoir and something would start to come out in poetry instead. And so I would have to turn a page over and write a poem. Even so, the, the distance that I'm able to create uh, in the artifice of a poem, the mask of a poem, allows me a little bit more protection than um, what the prose allows. Yeah. And one of the things you talk about in your childhood, you say very explicitly that your father gave you a thorough education in figurative language. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that a survival skill? It feels like it was. Um, and, I, and I think mainly not as a way to um, avoid or not contend with the truth of things, but a way to be safe in acknowledging the truth of things. Um, you know, the part that he was always pointing out from Robert Frost's essay is that without that, um, without one's proper poetical education in the metaphor, you're not safe in science and you're not safe in history. Um, you, you're not able to read the figurative language, the metaphorical thinking that is everywhere around you. And growing up black and biracial in the deep South, it was necessary to understand all of the figurative ideas about who I was in the white mind of the South as a way to be safe, um, to not allow that thinking to constrain me, uh, to name me and thus constrain me in a limiting way. And you were born in Mississippi when interracial marriage um, was illegal. That's right. Um, my parents married in 1965 and the Supreme Court didn't rule um, that those anti-miscegenation statutes in states were unconstitutional until 1967 in Loving versus the state of Virginia. And even then, uh, there were states that were still slow to comply sure. uh, and tried to find ways to keep interracial couples from being married. And so you talk about as a child, often feeling unsafe, being unsafe, because you're growing up in the Jim Crow South, that the KKK burned a cross on your driveway in, in your grandmother's house. How does constantly 
being under attack force you to choose a narrative about it? Well, I, I think it, um, well, for me, it's two things. And it, it does go back to our conversation about metaphor. Um, on the one hand, growing up in Mississippi in uh, the early part of my life um, with my mother's extended family and my father in this enclave of African-Americans that uh, had been in existence since after the Civil War, um, I felt very safe uh, and protected, surrounded by, by family. And only when we began to go outside of the confines of that community and encounter white people who were hostile to us, did I begin to understand the dangers um, that my mother knew quite well growing up in Mississippi. There was a constant onslaught of symbols, of metaphors and metaphorical thinking that constantly telling me who I was supposed to be and what my place was supposed to be as a second-class citizen in America. Everything from Confederate monuments and the Confederate flag, um, these symbols imprinting the landscape with a narrative of white supremacy and black subjugation. It could be overwhelming if you didn't understand the metaphorical thinking behind it, if you didn't understand that it was a narrative invented to place you in a particular uh, subjugated position. And so being able to tell a different story, to know a different story, because you are familiar with history, um, is one way of being safe. And it's another way of being free. And of course, a terrible overarching metaphor for you is that the violence in your life took place so close to Stone Mountain, which I, I was just Googling um, before we began talking to see if there's been any progress in um, getting monuments taken down. Uh, that, that it seems like we're in a time when we're ready for that change. And you grew up kind of, not grew up, you, you, you had this experience in the shadow of this depiction of the Confederate generals. Yeah, you know, um, when I wrote um, my collection of poems, Native Guard, uh, in many ways, I set these two. Um, I set these two existential wounds of mine side by side, um, because the first part of the book is elegies uh, to my mother. They are about my grief. I don't deal with how she died in that book, just my grief in the aftermath. And I, but I place that alongside um, Civil War memory and Civil War amnesia 
around um, black participation, uh, the monuments and memorials that we erect. I knew very well when I was laying these things side by side um, that I was thinking about domestic violence. I was thinking about um, our personal domestic violence in my own household, but I was thinking about our national domestic violence in our American household. Um, the domestic violence of slavery and the attempt by some Americans to enforce it, to maintain it, such that uh, we had to have um, a war. It took me writing Memorial Drive to realize that that begins for me not only in Mississippi, but also in Georgia. Um, it, I've been sort of thinking that all this time, my reason for dealing with monuments and memorialization and the way that they erase parts of American history and replace it with a false narrative of the lost cause had to do with Mississippi, had to do with being born on Confederate Memorial Day. But indeed, it is also tremendously significant that my mother was killed on Memorial Drive in the shadow of that giant monument and that giant uh, Stonewall Jackson, Robert E. Lee, and Jefferson Davis, that that loomed over everything and continued to inform you know, a good deal of the white mind of the South with this notion of valor and states' rights and um, not at all what they really stand for. And of course, one of the ways that you discuss trauma in your book, um, which I found really helpful, was you describe many dreams. Mm -hmm. um, dreams as metaphors, dreams as a way to explain what's happened. And, and I keep thinking about how you say that trauma is a kind of sleep paralysis. And, and I can feel that while reading the book that your mind knows something terrible is happening, but your body just can't seem to make itself move. Mm -hmm. You know, um, one of the dreams that I did not include in the book, uh, which I think is also a perfect metaphor for what we're talking about, um, and trauma and safety, um, and an inability physically to do anything about it, um, is a recurring dream I have about a home invasion. Always I am in a house and I know that someone is trying to get in it. And the doors look like they're locked, but it doesn't really lock. I can't really make it latch and stay shut. 
The odd part about that dream to me is it always takes place in my grandmother's house. So in the house of my early childhood, the house where I felt the most safe in a dream is always the house someone is trying to enter. So that tells me metaphorically, you know, as I ask in a, in a poem from my last book, what does it mean to be safe in the world? It tells me that I know that we are still in a time of danger and that it can enter even the safest life that you try to make for yourself. And we see it happening again and again. Um, when you do start to write about the time period when your mother married your stepfather, um, you, you write a chapter in the second person and tell me about that as a method of protection. Does, does calling yourself you give you some distance? I, I think that it begins that way. I think that um, as a literary device, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that chapter begins, you remember even though you don't want to. So it is a way of distancing myself and, you know, creating a character um, that is not me who's writing it um, that allows um, uh, a space between um, to remember or to uh, to call up that characters. I say remember, that's what's really happening, but it feels like I'm almost inventing um, the story I know exists for that character that I've invented. Um, but by the end of it, it also becomes a kind of indictment. Uh, if you, uh, uh, addressing myself in the second person begins as a way to distance myself by the end, when I write, you know, you know, you know, look at you, even now you think you can distance yourself from that girl you were, write in the second person as if you weren't the one to whom any of this happened. It, it took starting in the second person and going through the story of that character to finally say to myself, you are that character. Mm-hmm. And to, to indict myself for the, the desire, even in the telling of the story, to try not to own the story, to try to make it happen to someone that I'm not. And I imagine you talk about, towards the end of the book, I don't think I'm giving anything away, that you were offered your mother's files, um, legal files. And I can't begin to imagine what it's like to research what happened in your past. And, and become privy to things that you didn't know before. 
tell me, tell me about that as both a grieving daughter and also as, as a writer. Well, the writer in me um, loves that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, as a poet, I, I always turn to documentary evidence. Um, it is a way of getting at history and getting at truth. Um, and so to have that kind of thing would be a blessing. As a daughter, it was hard because, I mean, I could see her autopsy. I, I could see in the record all the ways that she should still be alive, that they could have saved her. I also could see, I could gain answers to some questions that I'd had. And to know that indeed she was thinking about me, trying to save and protect me. You made the choice to include the transcripts of, of two phone calls that she had recorded um, of her seemingly trying to rationalize with, with your stepfather who, again, it feels like that kind of nightmare where you can, where you just see it all happening and realize that he is not rational and, and that she's trying her best, but that well, doesn't matter. No, I mean, she, she is so rational and so reasonable and calm and direct. Um, she has to make these recordings because the district attorney has told her that they need evidence of him making terroristic threats. It's not enough that she tells them. So she has to have these conversations, these difficult conversations to record him making these terroristic threats. But at the same time, she is unwilling to acquiesce to his demands. And his demands are simple. Come back to me or you die. Come back to me or I'm going to kill you. And she says that she's not going to do that. That it's, she has to take a stand to have her own life. And it's amazing that she is able to do that um, and to stay so calm and rational. And I tell you, you know, when I have conversations like I'm having now, I mean, you could probably hear in my voice how I could, I go back and forth between uh, moments that are so strained because uh, I'm, I'm trying to be, to get out what I have to say without devolving into, into weeping. But then there are other moments that I feel a lot more steely in what I'm able to say. And, and that's when I feel like 
I channel a little bit of who she was. You know, I did the audio recording for that book. And I don't think I was ever as tough as I am reading those transcripts. And Straight then, through, oh. without a single mistake, oh. without stopping. As if I were simply a court stenographer. But I needed the power of her voice to come through unadorned. And it does so vividly. Um, thank you so much for taking this time and for talking to me. Um, before we go, um, will you tell me some books that you've been interested in that you'd like to recommend? Well, the books that uh, are uh, at the top of my head right now are the ones that really helped me uh, to get through writing this book. Um, uh, two come to mind uh, by the poet Gregory Orr, his memoir, The Blessing, um, and also his beautiful uh, meditation uh, on the role of the lyric in our lives, uh, poetry as survival. Um, Kim Barnes' uh, two memoirs, In the Wilderness and Hungry for the World. Kim Barnes is also a poet, and you hear in the beautiful lyricism of those two books um, that she's clearly a, a poet as well as a, a, a natural storyteller. Uh, Michael Gilmore's Shot in the Heart also helped me a great deal. And uh, Joan Didion's The Year of Magical Thinking. Oh, and Danzy Sinna's uh, Where Did You Sleep Last Night? About her father and her life growing up. Natasha, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.